You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm all right. You sound enthusiastic. Just thought I would give a little, a little extra oomph coming yeah. in on the intro here this week. You want anything I need to know about for this one? You would never know, would you? I, I have some suspicions right now. I'm going to be honest with you. Well... Somebody shows up at my door tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., asking me to pee in a sample cup. I'm not saying I'm going to pass. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm going to fail either. How's the health, speaking of which, up there at the house? Last week, uh, we your whole house was lousy with foot, hand, foot, and mouth disease. Is that what it was? Yes. Finally over it. Everybody? Everybody's healthy? Fit as a fiddle. Good to go? Yeah. By now, though, I assume your children should be coming down with it at any time now. Uh, it would simply be indistinguishable from the constant ravages of disease that always are just kind of going around in my house anyway. I, right. I doubt we would even notice. I know how that is. Uh, ben, we're going to get a little bit into UFC 200 this week because uh, we took a look at the at the schedule, the upcoming UFC schedule, and realized it was just going to be too much to try to squeeze into one uh, episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast, comma, hashtag ain't shit really going on this week except for us just mentally gearing up so yeah we're gonna start gearing up this week we're gonna get into it and uh just start rooting around in ufc 200 see what we find you feel ready i feel marginally ready well, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by Gymster. Last week, we started telling you about Gymster, the smartphone app you can use to design your workouts, log your progress at the gym, and set up a diet to keep yourself fit and healthy. The app was created by Mark Runza, who you might remember as a guy who used to email this podcast way back in the days when the CME was just starting out. We like to support people who support the show, so we encourage you to get online and go check out Gymster today if it sounds like something that might be up your alley. That's right, Chad. Gymster is the all-in-one health and fitness app for iOS and Android with over 400 exercises and instructional gifts. And you know how I love a GIF. 70 pieces of equipment and 140 recipes to choose from. Gymster has everything you need to exercise and enjoy a well-balanced diet. It remembers the fitness equipment that is available to you and saves them to a preset for easy and quick access whenever you need them. Store multiple gym presets such as your local gym, home garage, or even a preset for those times when you have no equipment at all. You can choose between manual selection mode and randomized mode. With the randomized mode, you simply select the amount of exercises you want to perform, the muscle group or groups you want to target, and then you select your gym. Gymster will do the rest, returning a fresh and exciting new workout routine each and every time. Hold up, though. What if your favorite exercise or piece of equipment is missing from the Gymster app? No solution. Not so, my friend. Oh. Contact the Gymster guys, and they will add it within 24 hours. Wow. Well, new exercises and recipes are added each week, so basically you can get an app that constantly updates itself for just $2.99. That's not all, though. Try Gymster Lite for free. If you like it, write the Lite version or review at your favorite app store and message the Gymster guys via Twitter or Facebook, and they'll send you a copy of the pro version absolutely free. How do you get in touch with them? Follow Gymster on Twitter at at Gymster app. 
That's app with two Ps. Or like them on Facebook to keep up with the latest news. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one. So we're just a couple of weeks away from UFC 200. And after months and months of worrying and hand-wringing, you know what? This card looks pretty awesome. How did that happen? And in round number two, we assume at this point that nobody is actually watching the tough season with Joanna Yedjechik and Claudia Gadella on it. But we're going to go ahead and discuss their strawweight title fight anyway, because it could be bananas. And in round number three, two days before UFC 200, the lightweight title will be on the line as Rafael Dos Anjos fights Eddie Alvarez. We had to remember to talk about this now, so we don't forget later. All that, plus just saying stuff, and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Brian from Hamilton, Ontario, who writes, I was wondering if you could discuss Ryan Jimmo and how he will be remembered in the MMA community. Uh, so a little bit of tragic breaking news just this morning uh, before we came in here to record the show that uh, UFC veteran Ryan Jimmo was killed in a hit and run accident uh, and he was just 34 years old. So way too young to... Uh, to, to go, really, no, yeah. matter, no matter who you are. An accident may not even be the right term. I mean, obviously, there's still a lot of details that need to be sorted out, but early reports suggest that it was something a little closer to, you know, somebody doing it on purpose after an argument in a, in a nightclub parking lot. Um, so, yeah, obviously, just a terrible situation all the way around. And I don't know, Chad, if you ever interviewed Ryan Jimmo, uh, but super nice guy. Uh, you I mean, obviously you don't want to see anybody struck down by a car at 34 years old, but you especially don't want to see it happen to a super nice guy who seemed like a smart guy, uh, and had a, a lot going on in his life. It's, it's just a sad thing. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think I ever did interview Ryan Jimmo, but I worked at cage potato around the same time when, when Mike Russell was working there. Uh, and Mike Russell was always, uh, pretty down on the Canadian fight scene. So even before, Ryan Jimmo debuted in the UFC. I think he was on our radar. He might even have done a couple of, uh, like feature spots with cage potato. And everybody always said he was a super, a super good dude. And, and, uh, as for a guy that how he will be remembered in the, in the community, um, he was a guy who took a while to, to make it into the UFC. He was already 16 and one, 17 fights deep in his, uh, his UFC career and had, had fought, uh, several times in MFC up there in Canada before he came in and made his, his UFC debut. Uh, and you know, wasn't necessarily the most successful, uh, light heavyweight fighter out there. But, but at the same time, stuck around for a good long time and just had his last fight in the UFC as of, uh, the end of May last year. So, um, even though he wasn't a guy who went out and became the champion or, or probably would be inducted into an MMA Hall of Fame, it seems like Ryan Jimmo left, uh, a positive mark on MMA, especially north of the border in Canada where he seemed to be extremely popular. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you're talking about what you'll remember him for, uh, in the cage, he, he had a way of at times making that kind of, uh, karate stance style work for him. Uh, he also, we cannot fail to mention his robot victory dance, right. which he, he would pull out at, at a moment's notice and was just a, just a damn solid robot. Uh, and I think also his willingness to speak out about issues affecting fighters, even though he had to know that he was never on the firmest of footing with the UFC. He wasn't a superstar or anybody that they couldn't get rid of if they didn't like the stuff he was saying. Uh, and he was still willing to, to call a spade a spade with regards to some of that stuff. So I think all of that factors into how we remember. Also, one of the things that uh, 
you may or may not know. You know one of the people he had a win over before he got into the UFC? Uh, no, not right off the top of my head. Emmanuel Isaac Newton, the big homie. Wow. Beat the big homie, Manny Newton. Jeez. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up about Ryan Jimmo, kind of an independent guy and a guy who is not afraid to to speak his mind. So I think he'll be remembered fondly in the in the MMA space. And, uh, again, just a super tragic news to find out that he lost his life uh, this week. And it sounds like they're still searching for the person who did it. No arrest yet, as far as we knew last, uh, last yeah. I checked. Next question this week comes from Rue Monte, who writes, I'm – just a pop-up on my computer there. Want me to, to download the uh, latest Microsoft Word. Are you going to edit this part out or are no. we just going to leave this in? This, we don't edit stuff out, so this will okay. be in there. All right. I think this is a good look behind the curtain for everybody. Next question this week from Rue Monte, who writes, I'm sure we're all happy to see Michael Chandler donning Bellator MMA gold again, but can you really consider him the best when the last two guys who beat him left for the UFC? Is it more that he's just the only good 155er left in Bellator? Sure, he hasn't fought Josh Thompson, but he hasn't been a title contender since Strike Force. If you read this email on the podcast, the fans should know that Chad Dunnis' book is available for pre-order on Amazon.com. Okay. Champion of the World is a surefire New York Times bestseller, and wouldn't you want to be one of those who said, yeah, I knew it by listening to the CME mm-hmm. and getting to know Chad Stranglebar Dundas. So yep. I pre-ordered this gem, and now look at him. He's a best-selling author. I'm starting to understand how Rue Monte got this email read on the podcast. I'm sure I don't know what you mean. You, You're just... You're incentivizing people to really hijack listener mail. Well, there's no way we could do this show without talking about Michael Chandler this week, right? So we just picked the best Michael Chandler email and wrote that on the right here on the right on the show. I wish people could see the look I'm giving you right now. No one wants to see that. No one wants to look at that ugly mug. Uh, so Michael Chandler goes out there and knocks out one of the Pitbull brothers. Which Pitbull brother was it? Patricky. It was Patricky Pitbull this past week. Uh as an aside, let's say you, you see the first Pitbull brother going out there to fight uh, Michael Chandler and you think, oh, OK, now I'll be able to tell the Pitbull brothers apart because he's grown a goofy mustache. <laughs> and then after Michael Chandler knocks him out in the first round. And by the way, Michael Chandler is the most hyped person in the world to ever win a Bellator title. And then he's doing his flips and his jumping up on on the cage. And the other Pitbull brother runs over to get in his face and you realize... He's got the same mustache. <laughs> so it's like a pro wrestling killer bees tag team type thing where maybe they thought if one Pitbull brother got in trouble, he could roll out of the cage and the other one would roll in. These guys the ref, know what they're doing. While the ref was distracted. They're, the, the Pitbull brothers did not end up here on accident. Okay. So let, let's give them credit for that. It is, though, a good question uh, what exactly it means for Michael Chandler to be the Bellator lightweight champion. For one thing, you say he knocked him out, and if you haven't seen the actual knockout, at least go look on the clip. I posted, I think, a, a gif of it or, or retweeted a gif of it that somebody had on my Twitter, and, man, he knocked him out. He got uh, The Pitbull brother got knocked out at least as bad as Matt Mitrione got yeah. knocked out in his fight. <laughs> we'll, we can talk about we'll that talk in a minute. We'll talk about that in a, in a uh, but Yeah, I mean, it was a great punch because it just kind of short, quick, out of nowhere, just uh, lightning bolt smacking you in the jaw. You know, no real like wind up or anything to give you a chance to, to see what's coming. And he was done as soon as that punch landed. So I don't blame Michael Chandler for being hyped. As for what it means, I'm kind of of two minds on this one because on one hand, does it mean anything less for Robbie Lawler to be the UFC welterweight champion because he never beat George St. Pierre? Uh, I don't know. I, I think we may have thought that at one point. 
seeing him have a couple of subsequent title defenses and, and having a lot of fun watching that, I think kind of changed that a little bit in people's memories and they don't harp on it so much anymore. It is a little different though when the dudes who who beat you or who you never had a chance to to take a title off of didn't just go and retire, they're going somewhere else. And so we're going to get to still make these comparisons. You know, if Will Brooks goes into the UFC and gets beat up a bunch and loses, you know, two of his next three or something, then that will reflect a little bit on the Bellator lightweight title, will it not? Um, yeah, maybe. And I mean, I don't think anyone's going to run around trying to say Michael Chandler is like the best lightweight fighter in the world right now. I don't think we would make that claim about him. Uh, but he does have those three career losses. And like you said, both those guys are now in the UFC. And I guess I would say just to Michael Chandler's relative strength of schedule, he lost a split decision to Eddie Alvarez at Bellator 106 uh, back in, in 2013. Uh, Eddie Alvarez in a couple weeks here is going to fight for the UFC lightweight title. So like, uh, that's not a bad loss. Yeah. There, if you're going to, if you're going to look for top competition to lose to the, the thing we don't know are the back-to-back losses over Will Brooks uh, in 2014. Cause Will Brooks, as you said, just signed with the UFC. We still don't know exactly how good he is yet. And, and how he performs in the UFC probably is going to reflect a little bit on Michael Chandler. When I watch Michael Chandler fight though, I feel like he passes the eye test for me. Like, uh, some guys, maybe they are champions in other organizations and you watch them fight and you're kind of like, I don't know. Like, I'm not, I don't know that this guy looks elite. Michael Chandler, uh, despite those losses, he looks awfully light on his feet out there. I think f- from a, uh, a striking standpoint, especially when he goes out there and just paint brushes Patricky Friere with that, uh, I think it was a straight right or straight left that he got him with. Uh, I feel like he looks like a guy who would be at least in the hunt. Yeah. Well, I, that was going to be kind of my next question was, even if we're saying, hey, he, by the transitive property, is not the best lightweight in all of MMA uh, because the dudes who beat him go on to lose to somebody else. If he's going out there and knocking people out like that, I wonder how long people will care, especially since the, the bar is a little bit lower than Bellator. We don't ask necessarily that Bellator champions prove that they are the best in the world the same way we seem to ask that of UFC champions. If you're going out there and you're knocking people out as you're Michael Chandler and you're hoisting a, a belt at the end of it, that might be enough. Yeah, I think that's a good point, and, and, and the rest of it is just guesswork anyway uh, as to where he would fit in and in the world lightweight title picture. Um, but my guess is probably pretty well. He seems like he seems like he's got the skills and uh, seems like he could be a top-level fighter no matter where he was. Uh, one more Pitbull mustache note. This almost never happens with a mustache, but I feel like the Pitbull, Patricky Pitbull rolls into this fight somehow looking less mean and dangerous with the mustache than they used to look without it. Confirm or deny. I feel like he goes out there looking like a teenager in like a Super Troopers Halloween costume, somehow with this mustache. Whereas before, both of the Pitbull brothers looked like dudes that you would not want to tangle with. You're saying that you think a mustache usually makes someone look tougher? Yes, I think most of the world would agree with that. No, not tougher. I would say usually what a mustache does for you is make you look somehow authoritative. Okay. Like like a highway patrol officer. I feel like we're splitting hairs here, but sure, I'll go with that. I mean, I'm not scared that a dude with a mustache is going to beat me up. I'm I'm scared that like, you know, he he's an off-duty cop and he's hmm. going to throw the cuffs on me or something. Uh a, a dude with one of those little like devil goatees, scary. That's scary. 
Well, I think that the entire decade of the 1970s disagrees with you, but whatever. We'll move on. The next question this week comes from Josh Montgomery, who writes, Bellator has been coming off some seriously bad PR when it comes to fighter safety, from Dada's heart attack to Kimbo being booked despite a very short steroid quote-unquote suspension, and then he unfortunately passes, along with the former employee Zach Light filing suit against them claiming false uh, falsified medicals. So what happens Friday night? Matt Matrione goes out there and gets briefly knocked into the nethers by uh, Carl Sayumanutafa. Nailed it. Sayumanutafa. Sayumanutafa. You say it. Let's move on. You say it. See, you're you're scared. Sayumanutafa. Yeah. I think Carl's brief C, and now Josh Montgomery, is going (laughs) to immediately go with the first name. His name is Carl. I think Carl's brief timeout took look at Big John and say, come on, man, instead of pounding, pouncing is the only thing that saved Matrione from a full-blown TKO KO loss. To his credit, Matrione mounted it's the just comeback. just really doing that Matrione thing all the way yep, through, huh? We're going to do that all the way through and, and not very much punctuation to help me out either. And got his hand raised. Uh, then in the post-fight interview, he admits he recalled nothing, not getting hit, not being out. Uh, not how he came back. And then what does Bellator do? Surprise, motherfucker, in all caps. You're going to unrela- unregulated London next month to fight another <laughs> massive head puncher. I really don't care what Matt or anyone says. He needs at least 30 days off, all the way off af- after that. Uh, this is a massive black eye for Bellator, especially Joe Boo forbid. Something bad happens to Matt over the pond in that fight. Please discuss. Uh, so yeah, point well taken here in this email from Josh Montgomery. I got to be honest, man, some of the wind has come out of my sails recently in terms of uh, liking what I see from Bellator. I feel like... How much wind was in those sails? Well, I feel like every time we discuss it on the podcast, every time we actually sit for a Bellator event, maybe with the exception of Kimbo Slice Dada 5000, maybe with the exception of Hoist Gracie versus Ken Shamrock, uh, I always came away with this feeling like, oh, I should watch more Bellator. The thing, the stuff that they're doing on Spike TV with the production values and the the overall level of competition, like, it's pretty interesting. I, I should watch more of this. In recent days, especially with the, the allegations of falsified medicals from Zach Light, some of the stuff that happened with Kimbo before his demise and then Dada 5000, uh, it really does make me think twice, man, about... Uh, supporting this company just because it seems there's a lot of smoke right now in terms of uh, what's going on behind the scenes. I think this question of what's going to happen if something bad does happen to him is a good one because we, one thing we've said about Bellator over and over again is, man, you have dodged a lot of bullets. Yeah. A lot of this stuff could have gone Increasingly way more dangerous bullets, I would say. Right. And we were asking the question, especially after the Dada 5000 Kimbo fight, and this was before Kimbo even died and we knew that he had a, a heart problem. But just based on what happened to Dada 5000, we were thinking like, all right, is this the point when Bellator realizes, whoa, we got too close to the edge there. Let's take a couple steps back. And then this Matt Matrione thing makes it seem like, nope. Definitely not. And Danny Downs and I talked about this a little bit in our trading shots. And as his his position as the the former pro fighter, he was like, "Look, you're kidding yourself to think that you know a little more space between fights is the cure all." That he could have easily taken a punch this hard in sparring a month out from the fight, and he we would have gone ahead with the fight, and nobody would have known or thought too much about it. And that's true. Like it is, there was some inherent risk there, but I think especially. When the guy is up there and not really sure what's going on right after the fight, and you announce right then, we have you booked in less than a month. Uh, as Josh Montgomery points out, in unregulated London, 
you've set yourself up so that if anything bad or even a little bit bad does happen, it looks like you just recklessly waded into this. And I don't know if that's something that you can afford if you're Bellator. Yeah, especially since it's kind of one thing after another for them at this point. If it was just the Matt Mitrione situation, maybe some eyebrows would be raised, but it comes on the heels of this well-established uh, promotional tactic they've got of booking these fights between aging stars, some of whom don't seem like they should still be in the cage. It comes on the heels of that terrible fight between Dada and Kimbo and the medical emergency that Dada 5000 suffered uh, right after it. And then it comes on the heels of the death of Kimbo Slice, which is obviously uh, the biggest tragedy of the, of the whole thing. Uh, and at least in my mind, raises eyebrows and kind of makes you go, hmm, that Kimbo dies you know, reportedly so soon after finding out that he was going to, that he needed a heart transplant. And then you've got these allegations of falsified medicals coming from Zach Light, which have nothing to do with Kimbo Slice on the surface, but at the same time, uh, kind of makes you squint at it if you're me, because obviously if the, if these allegations prove to be true, and again, we have no idea if they are or not. Uh, so I think it's a good idea to tread lightly a little bit in terms of placing, in, uh, in terms of placing blame. But like if they turned out to be true, that would be the far and away the most serious allegations lodged against Bellator in all of this. Here's a hypothesis that I think plays into this. Tell me if you agree with this statement. Bellator depends more on the hardcore MMA fan than the UFC does. Hmm, it depends on what you mean by hardcore fan, I guess. It seems like Bellator depends more on like the 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 channel surfing uh, MMA fan that knows who Ken Shamrock and Hoist Gracie are than like people who uh, know who Yair Rodriguez is. Can I Maybe. say that? I, I, and see, I can see that argument too, that, that Bellator is relying on people who just want to watch what's on. If there's a fight on, then all right, they'll watch that, and they're not too picky about the brand name, uh, and they are more likely to come across uh, Bellator on their, their TV dial than they are to see UFC on Fox Sports 1. But I also think that Bellator, it needs the, the people who really know what's going on in the MMA world and are reading the websites and are really clued in. It, those people, I think, are really important to Bellator because those are the people, the same people who are going to watch Russian MMA at 2 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon where there's, there's always something like that on, it seems. Those are the people who are going to make sure they're in their seats every time for Bellator. And those are also the people that are more likely to hear this news and to know what's going on and to have the larger narrative kind of existing in their head. And that's the thing I think that we're getting at here is that it's not just a question of will this one incident go bad for you. It's you have a lot of incidents that seem to point to the same type of problem separately. All you need is for one of them to go really badly and it looks like just – the consequence of a pattern of behavior on your part. And I don't think Bellator can afford to be the, the, the organization that is really lax on fighter safety. It's not the, the brush you want to be painted with. Yeah. And I guess, uh, in fairness to Bellator, we should say that it seemed like Scott Coker came to the post fight press conference and at least said that perhaps they had acted a little hastily announcing Matt Mitrione's next fight, kind of gave a classic Scott Coker answer where he was like, well, we'll have to wait and see how the medicals turn out. Maybe we, maybe we did this a little too hastily and, and we'll see how, how uh, everything turns out in the next few days. Kind of weird though, don't you think that, that Scott Coker seemed to ride into Bellator on this wave of public support that we thought of him as like a, a good promoter back in the strike force days, a guys who had made strike force profitable uh, right up to the point that his other investors decided to pull out. Uh, and a guy that we saw, if anything, as like a sober, uh, 
and serious fight promoter. And now he's gone out there and kind of, uh, at least in the eyes of people who are paying a close attention to this stuff, uh, maybe reversed some of that goodwill. I would, I don't know if I would say that he has reversed it. Uh, cause I still think he gets a lot of credit for being a good promoter. And you look at some of the stuff he's done with Bellator. He has, you know, for better or worse, figured out what the fans will show up for. And maybe sometimes we're a little bit disheartened at what the fans will show up for, but He's done his job as as a promoter. I think it's this other stuff about uh, how the company is run and and whether they're paying enough attention to to fighter safety, whether they're they're cutting corners, uh, just trying to get where they think they need to go. That's the stuff he needs to address. Um, and I don't, I'm not sure how much of that should be placed on Scott Coker personally. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern. Uh, to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up in the on the news and notes that we miss from Tuesday through Friday when we're not recording the podcast. It's short. It's humorous. We think you'll like it. If you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, it feels like we have all been through an awful lot with UFC 200. This is a fight card, I think for obvious reasons that we all looked at starting weeks, maybe months ago, trying to figure out what would be uh, a possibility to wind up on this card and how the UFC would go about creating a, a, a mega card on par with what it did years ago at UFC 100. Uh, we all went through the Conor McGregor, Nate Diaz drama uh, we all questioned whether or not George St. Pierre would show up on this card, whether Anderson Silva would show up on this card, whether George St. Pierre versus Anderson Silva would show up on this card, CM Punk, etc., etc. Now we've got the real thing staring us right in the face on July 9th, just a couple of weeks from now. And it looks pretty awesome all the way around. And it kind of feels like it came together not at the last minute, but I feel like for a long time we were like, oh, what are they going to do for UFC 200? They haven't done anything yet. Then suddenly you get Cormier Jones, you get Brock Lesnar's return, you get Misha Tate defending the women's bantamweight title, and you get, you know, the uh, interim featherweight title fight between Jose Aldo and Frankie Edgar, uh, plus Travis Brown versus Cain Velasquez on the main card just just for grins. Uh, and then a, a pretty awesome preliminary card both on Fox Sports 1 and UFC Fight Pass. Which part of this are you looking forward to the most you know that's a really tough one for this i i guess i have to say john jones versus daniel cormier because for one thing it is an opportunity to watch probably the best overall mixed martial artist in the game right now go out there and work and it's a fight with a lot of history between the two of them i am interested to see if there are any changes from the last time uh from either guy uh, and there are plenty of reasons why there might be but i you know i look at this main card especially and the thing that I think is really fun about it is how it offers so many different types of things that fight fans like. It's not just a, a lineup of all the champs are going to defend all their belts and it's all basically the same thing. You know, you got your your just for shits and giggles Brock Lesnar and Mark Hunt thing, uh, which 
you can try to act like you're not excited about, but you know you are. Uh, you got the women's bantamweight title with Misha Tate and Amanda Nunes. Uh, Jose Aldo and Frankie Edgar are going to do it again, brother, with a fight that feels like it, even though uh, there's kind of similar stakes, it feels completely different this time around. Uh, and then Cain Velasquez versus Travis Brown, which is the kind of fight that we would have all considered a, a potential pay-per-view headliner not too long ago. So I don't know, man. I, it, it does seem like it came together slowly a little bit, not quite last minute, but you're right, kind of piece by piece. But now that you'll have a chance to look at the finished product, it seems increasingly difficult to say UFC is not pulling out all the stops for this one to make it a big show. Yeah, I don't think you can say that at all. I think that they've they've done everything they could possibly do here to make this a big deal. And then, of course, kind of at the last minute, you get Brock Lesnar on there just as the hammer coming in to to fully make this thing into a blockbuster. Uh, does Brock Lesnar, in your opinion, retain all of the drawing power that he had before? Are we simply viewing him as a curiosity now that he's kind of, uh, you know, he had his time as the UFC heavyweight champion and then ended up losing the belt and, and, uh, some of his deficiencies in his all around mixed martial arts game came to the fore towards the end of his, his previous career. Uh, is he still going to be the attraction that he was back then? I think he is more of a curiosity now. I don't think he's the same attraction as far as. Uh, let's see if this guy could turn out to be just some freak athlete who can show up in this new sport and completely dominate it, which I think was part of the appeal a while ago. But I think as far as numbers wise, I think he probably is the still, still the same attraction because he pulls people in for different reasons. Like he pulls in the, the pro wrestling crowd a little bit, the people who at least watch pro wrestling enough to know who Brock Lesnar is and who still care a whole lot about him. There's still a lot of people out there for whom, you know, Brock Lesnar feels like, uh, a big deal when he shows up, even if they don't necessarily follow the, the sport day to day. But I also think then for the people who do follow the sport and are the real hardcore fans, this matchup is especially fun because there's always this, been this kind of lingering resentment toward Brock Lesnar. A guy comes in from pro wrestling and immediately is ushered into a UFC title shot pretty much and seems like he got everything handed to him. Uh, the UFC again, Going out there, getting him, giving him this big spot on UFC 200, it seems like the stuff always comes a little bit easier for Brock Lesnar than it has these guys who have toiled in the sport for a long time. And so that fan is really going to enjoy the possibility that Mark Hunt will knock his head clean off, especially because Mark Hunt is kind of like this cultural hero to a lot of those hardcore fans. The, the guy who's been around for a long time, who's written off over and over again, and now has had this awesome late career renaissance. Those people would love to root for Mark Hunt against Brock Lesnar. It just it fits exactly what they want. Yeah, and I it, even and maybe because of that, it's a super interesting athletic matchup. As far as I'm concerned, we haven't seen Brock Lesnar fight in a legitimate fight for four and a half years. He's going to be 38 years old by the time uh, this thing goes down. Uh, so we don't know what he brings to the table in terms of his attributes. Is he still going to possess just a lightning quick double leg takedown? Is he still going to be like a once in a generation caliber of athlete for a 285 pound man in this sport? Because if he is, I think he can beat Mark Hunt. And if he's not, I think he's going to get knocked out in hilarious fashion, in the kind of fashion that we'll be watching on highlight videos 
for the rest of time. And I think that you're right that like because of a lot of the lingering feelings that people have about Brock Lesnar and Mark Hunt, that makes this matchup uh, really, really interesting. Uh, I wish we could find a betting line on whether or not Brock Lesnar will just sprint across the cage at the very start of this fight. Just gong and dash? Yeah. We could find a gong and dash, like, uh, prop bet? Yeah. Because I feel like there's a pretty good chance of that right here. Yeah, I don't, I would be surprised if you don't see that. Like, uh, that, the underdog, the long money there would be on he doesn't do that, right? Like, he comes out and, and circles <laughs> with his hands up. Yeah. Like, he's going to test Mark Hunt. I yeah. got it. You know, the two uh, uh, women's bantamweight and featherweight title fights that are on this card are also super interesting just because you got Misha Tate going out there to make her first title defense against Amanda Nunes since she kind of came from behind to beat Holly Holm in their bout. And, of course, Jose Aldo and Frankie Edgar uh, have fought once before in a clear cut but but still competitive victory for Jose Aldo. And, you know, whoever wins both of those fights will enter into uh, – a, a bonanza of opportunity because whoever comes out of this as the women's bantamweight champion, let's just assume it's Misha Tate. Uh, you go ahead and take your place among uh, the suitors for Ronda Rousey for a Holly Holm rematch or for moving up in weight to potentially fight Chris Cyborg at 140 or 145. And then whoever wins the Aldo Edgar fight obviously uh, can say all that they want to about Conor McGregor in a nasty way in the media. And maybe they luck out and Conor McGregor returns to 145 uh, to fight them for the, the uh, undisputed featherweight title. Now you want a guaranteed prop bet. I guarantee you that. Whoever wins that featherweight fight, Conor McGregor's name will be spoken in the post-fight interview. Yeah, that's not even a bet. I don't even think you offer a line on that. That's that's just a given. That's yeah. just going to happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you would be better off offering a line on how many other people will mention Conor McGregor during their UFC 200 post-fight interviews. Cain Velasquez probably won't do it. Diego Sanchez, though, if he were to beat Joe Lauzen. Oh, God. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> well, now... I can't really argue with TJ that. TJ Dillashaw? Kind of, maybe, going up in weight. Sage Northcutt, although he would refer to him as Mr. McGregor. That's right. <laughs> That's a possibility. Uh, I think one of the things that makes the Aldo-Edgar fight so much more interesting for me this time is I really just want to know what kind of what shape Jose Aldo's mind and body are in right about now. Interesting times for Jose Aldo, and I really don't know what to expect from him because for so long... He was just that untouchable kind of human buzzsaw to the point where it felt like he could get out ahead of you later, early in the fight and then coast later on and was almost at times looking bored with what was going on later in some of these fights when he knew he had it in control. And then having his air of invulnerability punctured in 13 seconds or whatever it was by Conor McGregor, but Mr. McGregor, if you prefer, uh, don't you wonder what's that? what that's going to do to the guy? Is he going to come out like an absolute crazed murderer? Or does that make Jose Aldo somewhere in the, the darkest parts of his heart start to doubt his own abilities? It's an interesting question, especially since it wasn't really that long ago that it happened. You're thinking about eight months about. Uh, and I think you could argue, you know, I don't want to take anything away from Conor McGregor. He went out there and knocked out the greatest featherweight of all time, a guy who had been undefeated over 10 years, knocked him out in 13 seconds. One of the most shocking things that I have ever seen in this sport to see Jose Aldo tip over like somebody pushed over a stack full of bricks, just 
an insane knockout from Conor McGregor. But at the same time, if you're Jose Aldo, you got to feel kind of like maybe the pre-fight hype and trash talk got to you. Maybe you went out there and thrust yourself face first into Conor McGregor's left hand. And that makes you kind of, if you are Jose Aldo, that that might do weird stuff to you psychologically because Aldo has always been, like you said, a buzzsaw, the kind of guy who that was kind of his game would go out there, especially in the WEC days, a little bit less so after he became a UFC champ. But he would just go out there with extreme aggression and would just kind of burn you up with his technical superiority. So, yeah, I have no idea how he'll look out there against Frankie Edgar. Well, and then you wonder the same thing about Frankie Edgar. I mean, the the last time he fought Jose Aldo, he had lost two straight, at least nominally. He had those two decision losses to Benson Henderson that he was coming off of uh now he's won five in a row and be you know uh kind of a who's who uh, you get bj penn the later years version of bj penn for them. but then you know he goes through cub swanson uriah faber and chad mendez just knocking out mendez in the first round uh you gotta feel like old man edgar is coming in here with a head of steam he's putting down the newspaper taking the glasses down off his nose you know leaving the slippers by the hearth and and marching out there feeling pretty good about his abilities right now yeah, staring at a black and white photo of Martha and the children before he goes out there and then folding it up. Dearest Martha, sticking I write it, to you now on the eve of battle. Sticking it in the side pocket of his valise and then going out there to, <laughs> to fight for the world's heavyweight championship. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I think that's one of the matchups that I'm really looking forward to. Looking forward to all these matchups, to be honest with you. And on next week's show, you got to think we'll get heavy into uh, probably, I would think, some more Brock Lesnar talk, some more uh, Jones and Cormier talk. Uh, but it's going to be a week-long extravaganza, sort of, in this UFC 200. There's two shows uh, immediately preceding this, and we will talk about those in rounds two and round three this week. Right now, though, we got Sir Nigel Longstock in the house. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of Master Tweet Theater, and that starts right now. What's that time again? We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am robust and girlish. Well, that's half true. Um, I assume you came in here with another one of your half-assed themes. Yes, sir, I did. But first, we have a sponsor. Oh, good. <clears throat> this episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by Farmhouse Cookies. Small batch artisanal cookies just like Grandma used to make. Farmhouse Cookies is a product of the Good Earth Company. The Good Earth Company. Organic snacks and cattle feed just like Grandma used to make. A subsidiary of Chemdyne. High-pressure polymer extrusion products just like Grandma used to extrude. Chemdyne is a division of Global Products Incorporated. Global Products Incorporated. We own everything. I was very lucky to land this sponsor. Yeah, it seems like an odd advertising copy that they came up with for you, but uh, I guess you're an odd fellow. I don't understand why the farmhouse people would want to reveal their corporate pedigree. <laughs> well, there you go. Here we are. So, let's just let's get it out of the way right now. What's the theme? The theme is harnessing the power of multimedia. So, like tweeting. Yes, but tweeting with multiple media. Visual, which I will describe, and, uh, well, mostly just visual, actually. See, this one seems like he couldn't possibly screw it up, and yet I have hope. It's true that some of the multimedia consists of emoji. 
That's not a multimedia. Okay, I guess go ahead when you're ready. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. Yo, Twitch fam. Sorry to say that I won't stream today. Think I have a virus or someone is hacking shit. We'll try for Friday. Frowning emoji. Okay, Chad, I don't know. Do you know what Twitch is? Are you familiar with this? I don't know who it, what it is, but I know which UFC champion uses it a lot. You assume that there's only one MMA personality who uses it a lot. True, true. You may have found uh, the flaw in my logic here, but I'm still going to go with UFC flyweight champion Demetrius Johnson, who uh, has more followers due to his use of this thing called Twitch than his actual fighting career. See, I'm also going to go with Demetrius Johnson. I was trying to throw you off the scent. Uh, Rampage Jackson, I believe, is also another oh, guy uh, big on this. But I'm going to also say Demetrius Johnson. Hmm, both fine guesses, both Gamergate nerds, but both incorrect. It was Rampage Jackson. God damn it. Okay, now, see, here's, here's the thing that I thought just as we made these incorrect guesses. Which one of those two fighters would be most likely to have a quote-unquote virus on his computer? <laughs> no, that's a good point. See, I talked myself out of Rampage Jackson because I was like, this seems so polite yeah. to his Twitch fam. It seems like so considerate of them. And frowning face emoji and everything. That, that screamed Demetrius Johnson to me. And now I, now I feel like a fool. I'll he just won. say it. He won last weekend. He's in a good mood. Okay. <clears throat> Except for that virus. Tweet the second. He's been hacked. My mother gets hacked all the time, particularly when she tries to connect her phone. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the second. I am rich with washing machine in the house. Monkey covering eyes emoji. Is there any punctuation whatsoever? Uh, yes, there is an exclamation point right at the end. Can you read it one more time? I am rich with washing machine in the house. Monkey emoji. Jessica I. See, I was going to go Jessica I here too. Who was the person that Sir Nigel tricked us into thinking was Jessica I last time, but then it wasn't? Do you remember? My memory does not extend back that far. I don't remember ever doing this before. Unfortunately, neither does mine. Uh, Jessica I. Hmm. Both fine guesses, both Jessica I, and both wrong. It is Chris Cyborg. Wow. Cyborg Santos washing her clothes in the home instead of beating them on a rock. Wow. Damn it. Are we on a thing here where we're just going to guess the same person each time and be wrong each time? We better, we better break out of this funk. Okay. I agree. Tweet the third. Nothing is more annoying than someone trying to finish your sentences when it's wrong. Just hold up. Let them talk. Shh! Crossbar emoji, like the Ghostbuster symbol, but without a ghost. This is really working out well where you describe emojis to us. I'm having a lot of fun, so. Wait, there's only, has there been a picture yet, or has it been all emojis so far? <laughs> I think all, we're three for three on emojis. All emojis. I'm sure Quentin Jackson tried to upload a picture. You got anything for no, this? No, this could be anyone. Read, read it again. <clears throat> Nothing is more annoying than someone trying to finish your sentences when it's wrong. Just hold up. Let them talk. Shh. Crossbar emoji as previously described. Hmm. Kendall Grove. I'm going to go Misha Tate, but I don't even know why. Both fine guesses both hate to be interrupted and both wrong. This one is Jessica I. What? Oh, fuck you. I tricked you. God. Ghost written by who? By <laughs> who? I should have said that than is spelled then. Oh. Um, this is yes. already... Already we have cause for an appeal, I think. 
<clears throat> well, perhaps you can pick up some points on Tweet the Fourth. This Hershey's Statue of Liberty is tempting to eat. Photograph of Tweeter standing in front of a chocolate Statue of Liberty. That sounds like a Super Sage Northcutt. Now, you are going to be tempted to also say yeah, Super Sage no, Northcutt, yeah, Chad, but you know what could happen right? if yeah. you do that. Yeah. I, that does sound like Sage Northcutt, though, is the thing, and now I feel like you're trying to reverse psychology me on our strategy. Here. I just want you to know what, what could happen here. Okay, even though I know that that's probably going to turn out to be Sage Northcutt, I guess I will go with someone else. No, then you're just going to blame it on me if you're wrong. Go with your heart. Well, I do think that that's probably Sage Northcott with okay. a picture of him pointing at the thing. All right. It is It is Sage first idea Northcutt saying that a chocolate statue is tempting to eat. <laughs> oh, well, that is some multimedia right there. This Hershey Statue of Liberty is tempting to fuck, said Sage He never says things See, like that's that. See, that's your first idea. That that's is, the problem. I, I, could, I could get that statue. <laughs> That's an attainable chocolate statue for Sir Nigel. <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. Come say hi, you bunch of primates. And if you can't make it, just send your wife. Link to public appearance in Sioux City. Okay. Who's in Sioux City? Didn't they do the Dana White looking for a fight thing? They did, but they're also doing, there's a UFC there coming up. Oh, that's right, there is. Really? In Sioux City, Iowa? Or, right, wait, no, it's Sioux, Sioux, Sioux Falls. Falls. Sioux, City? Sioux, Sioux Falls, Falls, South Dakota. Same place. Sioux City, Iowa, my ancestral home. Sioux Falls is where he was looking for a fight was. Yeah, South Dakota. Sioux, Sioux City is probably where they're having the UFC. No, they're having the UFC in South Dakota. Oh, shit. I'm... So who, now we have to recalibrate thinking about Iowa. Uh, Tim Sylvia. Wow. I'm going to go Joe Rogan here. Because of the uh, primates, use of the word primates to describe humans. Oh, damn it. Okay. Both fine guesses, both happy to meet your wife, and both wrong. It is UFC Hall of Fame inductee Don Fry. Oh, well, there you go. Now, that makes a lot of yeah. sense, actually. Going to Sioux City, going to do a little dog racing? Maybe a blackout? Whatever. <laughs> that sounds like a man who knows Sioux City better than anybody else at this table. Well, I guess that's it. For this week, what do you got going on, Sir Nigel? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished shooting an exciting project about two misfit friends who move in together after high school and must fight orcs or something. Maybe trolls. I see. And what's it called? It's called Ghost World of Warcraft. And what role do you play? I play Nigel Gearsprocket, a gender-ambiguous gnome. Yes, that sounds about right. Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstar. Thank you, sir. Chad, Joanna Yonjeshik and Claude Okay, I feel like Mike Goldberg just showed up here. Yeah. You know what? No one is on the co-main event podcast is sitting here like, we stick the landing on Joanna Yonjeshik <laughs> and Claudia Gadella. But at least we're not... Claudia? Yeah, at least we're not going full, uh, like, 1990s newscaster when they encounter the word Nicaragua. <laughs> Like Mike Goldberg appears to do when he encounters the name Claudia Gadella, because I'm just going to go ahead and say that. 
I feel no need to say, or whatever he says. It's just, I mean, it's Goldberg, right? You got to love the guy. You don't have to, actually. Uh, as I was saying. Yes, go. No, go on. Joanna Yunjechik and Claude Jugadelia, apparently, I'm told, have been arguing a lot on the reality TV series that is somehow still happening constantly the, somewhere. The stills on the short videos that the UFC tweets make it seem like they've got beef. Yeah. I don't know. If I clicked on those videos, I might know more, but... You got stuff to do. Yeah. You got a lot of tabs open as it is. That's right. You know, multiple tabs all day. Yeah. Uh, now they're finally going to get in there and do it again, brother. And while I have not been following the beef aspect of it, and while it's, you know, kind of enough for me to know, oh, they've got beef. It's personal. Okay. That's an added little bonus. It's just a good fight. And as everybody who listens to this podcast knows, Joanna Champion is kind of a favorite of the CME podcast. We love to watch her work. So it does feel to me like I, I'm almost a little sad that it's going to get the UFC 200 cloud treatment here where we're going to remember like two days before this fight, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Oh, shit. July 8th, Friday, the day before UFC 200. This is happening. Because there's not a whole lot else on this card. To really pull you in there, I feel like it's going to be a lot of where people decide, all right, I'll, I'll catch up with this one tomorrow. Uh, and makes me feel sad for Joanna Champion because she's UFC 200 material. She sure is. And this will be a rematch of their first fight from December 2014, which was obviously the most competitive fight of Joanna Jacek's UFC career. She won that by split decision over Claudia Gadella, and that was the one that, that launched her into that title fight against Carla Esparza at UFC 185, where was the one where I think you could say she, she done woke everybody up to what she was capable yeah. of. Uh, and since then has become not only a favorite of the co-main event podcast, but I would say like a cultish figure among mixed martial arts, hardcore fans. Like she is, uh, uh, she is a real favorite kind of across the board at this time, uh, both because of her fighting style and uh, I believe because of her uh, willingness to share her shoe fetish on her Instagram account and post pictures of her like cute bicycle that she owns over there in Poland. Uh, well, and also she just seems like uh, a a weird blend of stuff that we have wanted from a uh, female champion in MMA. I remember you, Chad Dundas, once complaining that everybody was just too motherfucking nice. Yeah, fact. Uh, and she manages to not be too motherfucking nice, especially when it comes to dealing with opponents, but also not be like a pro wrestling character about it, not be kind of like where it seemed at times like Ronda Rousey was had taken to heart too much the uh, praise that she was uh, Diaz's brother in a beautiful fucking body and was just going to go ahead and try to live that gimmick. Uh, and it seemed a little transparent at times. And Yuena Yanjechik manages to come off like everything about her seems totally genuine. Uh, and she also seems like she really, truly wants to break your face apart. Uh, and Slowly over a long <laughs> period of time. Yeah. And it, I mean, it just seems so like she has become with very little promotional help. It seems like people have just kind of found her and noticed, Oh yeah, this is pretty awesome. What she's doing here. Uh, and now when it seems like she has somebody who feels like she must be some kind of natural foil for her, this seems like this ought to be the breakout moment, does it not? Which is scary because historically... 
people lose their breakout moments in the sport of mixed martial arts. Well, that's just you being a pessimist. Well, it makes you wonder, uh, what are the chances that Anna Claudia Dantes Gedalia goes out there, uh, and does spoil the Joanna Champion, uh, celebration? Uh, Gadell has only fought once since these, since they met. Uh, she fought Jessica Aguilar and won a unanimous, unanimous decision at UFC 190 in August. Yeah, kind of dominated that fight too. Of, of last year. She's looked good. At the same time though, uh, as we said before, Joanna Jacek won the title from Cla- uh, Carla Esparza and then beat the bricks off Jessica Penne in their fight and then also, uh, beat up Valerie Letourneau, uh, in, uh, November 2015. Uh, and has kind of put together one, like painstaking beat down in more and more impressive fashion each time she's been out there. But like, what are the chances that this all comes to a screeching halt? Cause there are some people that will tell you Gadella won the first one. Yeah. And if there's anybody out there who can give her uh, the toughest test right now, I would definitely say it's Gadella. But at the same time, I think that, uh, I, my my feeling is that Yuena Yanjechik is a better fighter now than she was then, or at least you know maybe a little more confident in exactly what her game is. Because you remember when she went in to fight Carlo Esparza, the conventional wisdom was, yeah, she's a great striker and she's going to get taken down. And when she does, she's going to be in a whole hell of a lot of trouble. And then it turned out that she had a lot better takedown defense than we gave it credit for and a lot more murderous stand-up than a lot of us gave it credit for. Uh, and I think that over these last couple of fights, I mean, the Valerie Letourneau one was a little more workmanlike of an effort than the absolute murderous beatdown she put on Jessica Panay. But I still think that you kind of see her evolution ongoing. And if you're Claudia Gedalia, I don't know exactly how you think you're going to deal with her if you have to be in there for five rounds with Yuanna and Jaychik. I think you got to that's the question you got to answer because especially her style, I feel like is really conducive to, to winning a close decision. If it comes to that. See now what you just said there, what is Claudia Gedalia going to do? How is she going to beat Joanna Yajajic? You can call it pessimism if you want to, but hearing you say that so confidently makes me think trap fight. <laughs> well, yeah, the I mean, day not- before UFC 200, not very many people are going to be watching. You've already beat this woman once before, coming off an entire season of The Ultimate Fighter. Trap fight! You know, I, that's totally possible. I would not be shocked if, you know, hey, they maybe they have another close fight and this time the decision goes Gedalia's way. That could totally happen. Uh, I also wonder, it seems like just based on what we've learned of Yuanna and Jaytrick's personality, that if somebody is going to be the beneficiary of this being a heated rivalry, it's probably going to be her. It seems like she is the one who knows exactly how to compartmentalize that stuff and how to deal with it. And you you wonder if Gedalia has that same ability. That's because her tiny black heart beats with nothing but rage. Have you seen the the uh, the tiny troll that shows up for these weigh-ins? <laughs> Climbs into her opponent through the nose, takes over her soul. Another prop bet. What do you present Claudia Gedalia with at the weigh-ins? You know if you're Andy and Jacek and that's your gimmick. I bet it's going to be something tough related. I bet it'll be an inside joke from the set of The Ultimate Fighter and you and I will just be locked out of it. We will have no idea. We'll be like, oh, she knitted her a sweater. What does that even mean? <laughs> we'll, we'll, and we'll still we'll rather... We'll be frantically Googling. We'll be rather locked out of the joke than having to sit through another season we'll of be, The Ultimate we'll Fighter. We'll be looking up. 
tough season 804 on Wikipedia, just hoping that it still has its own dedicated Wikipedia page. If she gives her a piece of a flimsy door, I feel like I'm going to know what to make of that. I've seen enough tough for that. That's going to be a pretty easy one to place there. Uh, Well, Ben, we can do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we can move on to round number three. Uh, Ben, what is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, uh, at MMA Junkie, you might have seen we had a uh, an article talking about Don Fry's uh, induction into the UFC Hall of Fame that's coming up here. I've heard of that website, and I did see the article. Did you see this quote where Don Fry is talking about why he feels like this is a great time for him to be inducted into the Hall of Fame? Quote, I tell you, the timing couldn't be better. I need this more than anything. Nothing good is going on in my life. My horse died back on Labor Day. My wife betrayed me and has taken the kids with her, so I got nothing. This is a breath of fresh air. Are you fucking kidding me? Don Fry keeps it real. He is going to tell you exactly what is going on in his life to an uncomfortable degree. You're not going to know what to make of it. And Don Fry knows you're not going to know what to make of it. And he does not care. Also, you notice how he mentioned the horse thing first. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, I, I got. I have no response for that. There is no response there for that. There is no good response for that. Really puts, though, maybe his priorities in order when he tells you that things have been really bad because his horse died. And, oh, yeah, his wife is leaving and taking the kids. Fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? I guess if he needs a place to crash, he can call up Casa de Folks, right? You got a guest room? Yeah, basement? You know, but you just redid your house. It's really nice here. You I think you should, no uh, extra room. I think, you know, it seems like it's really roomy. You guys took out this wall. It seems like you got a lot of extra room now. Well, Ben, uh, Dana White went on the first episode of the UFC Unfiltered podcast, uh, last week. And among other things, he accused Ariel Helwani of making the story about his brief banning from the UFC, quote, all about him, huh. end quote. Uh, and to that, I guess I would just say, man, who keeps bringing this up? Like, Ariel Helwani has been done talking about this for like two weeks. So I guess there's some irony in that, that the UFC keeps bringing this up. The real Are You Fucking Kidding Me, however occurs been due to this and this happens every time dana white or really anybody at the ufc takes issue with a journalist now you'll notice that every time they have these discussions they try to dress them up as discussions about ethics about right and wrong yeah uh and dana white tries to do that here despite the fact that it only reveals that he has uh no idea what journalism and or ethics mean the real are you fucking kidding me however comes because the ufc is so bad at obscuring its real intent in almost all of these discussions and that's because if you look at all of the other words that come out of dana white's mouth around the word journalist you'll see that the real thing that he is mad about here is that he feels that somebody's news report might cost him money personally you can see that when you look at what he says about all of the things where he says that quote-unquote, endangered a business relationship and, quote-unquote, pointing fingers at people backstage and that WWE had gone out of its way to make Brock Lesnar available for UFC 200, which, by the way, kind of makes it seem like maybe Dana White is mad that Ariel Helwani embarrassed him in front of uh, Vince McMahon. Uh, So first of all, are you fucking kidding me, UFC? And second of all, pay attention. Anytime the UFC starts really going after a reporter, pay attention to the words they use and what they actually say, because I think it will become clear to you that what is going on here is not a conversation about ethics, but rather a conversation about the UFC being mad because it believes that somebody may have adversely affected its business. Not the same discussion. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm kidding me. 
Well, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, if you want to see a contrast in styles of Wikipedia pic- pictures, you should check out Eddie Alvarez and Rafael Dos Anjos because okay. they're both weirdly similar and yet just worlds apart because they're both standing there. They both got their belts. Eddie Alvarez has his Bellator belt. Dos Anjos has his UFC belt. They're both looking at the camera. Eddie Alvarez is doing the fist pose. I see what you mean. And yet, like, Eddie Alvarez is sitting there smiling, looking like probably somebody caught him in a snapshot while he and the family were out at Coney Island. Somebody has clearly been cropped out of this yeah, photo. Yeah, somebody's been cropped out of it. It looks like a group shot. They got it right right out in front of that all-wood roller coaster over there at Coney Island. <laughs> You're talking about the cyclone, Yeah, I the cyclone. Rafael Dos Anjos is also doing the fist pose, but he looks like... A hired killer? Either a hired killer or like this photo is on the law firm's website showing like, the junior associates. Like, we'd like to re- welcome Rafael. I don't know, man. Just like kind of shows you perhaps two different attitudes added into this fight. He specializes in liver destruction and maritime law. So this one's going to be UFC fight night Dos Anjos versus Alvarez, which goes down two days before uh, UFC 200 and one day before the strawweight title fight. Uh, Rafael Dos Anjos will be making his first appearance since he obliterated Donald Cerrone back in December of 2015. And Eddie Alvarez, meanwhile, has put memories of his loss to Donald Cerrone uh, back in September of 2014 to rest with a pair of split decision wins, one over Gilbert Melendez and one over Anthony Pettis. Now, you said this about Joanna Jacek and Claudia Gadella uh, during the last round. Do you feel bad for... Uh, Rafael Dos Anjos and Eddie Alvarez, especially Eddie Alvarez getting this shot at the UFC title after a career of hard times uh, and kind of being lost in the cloud of UFC 200. Maybe even worse than the Friday night show because this one is the Thursday night show. And it's on thefightpass.com. Okay. Well, you said it, not me. So, no, I mean, there is reason to not feel too great about that if you're either Rafael Dos Anjos or Eddie Alvarez. You know, if you're Rafael Dos Anjos, uh, here you are, you're defending your belt, you're, you know, you just beat up Donald Cerrone, who everybody loves so much, you absolutely, you know, destroyed him, uh, right quick, you beat up Anthony Pettis, who everybody loves, and your reward is the UFCFightPass.com, I could see how you might feel like you're kind of getting the short end of the stick there. Uh, and like you said, if you're Eddie Alvarez, but I feel like also, the thing with Eddie Alvarez right now, is it seems like people are, begrudgingly accepting of sure let's go ahead and do this Eddie Alvarez Rafael Dos Anjos fight but it seems like people have not yet bought into Eddie Alvarez I think it's the the nature of his recent victories it just either people felt like he shouldn't have won those fights or they did not they were not overly impressed with how he won those fights and it seems like uh, a lot of people whether they're saying it or not are just waiting this one out to see what happens next at lightweight yeah, maybe not have accepted Eddie Alvarez as a championship level uh, contender at this stage in the UFC just because those two split decisions. And probably I think you could fairly say people have not necessarily accepted Rafael Dos Anjos as a guy that they want to watch, uh, whereas I think he has clearly cemented himself 
as the number one lightweight in the world at the moment. Now, it's funny that you just said that about him beating everyone's favorite Donald Cerrone and prior to that beating everyone's favorite Anthony Pettis, because do you remember who he beat just prior to Anthony Pettis? Uh, I'll give you a clue. Benson Henderson? He beat everybody's favorite Nate Diaz. Right before that. That's right. In a 160 did. pound catch weight fight because Diaz missed weight. And before that. And that beat, was the one where Diaz said he was too injured to, to cut weight. Yeah. He, before and, that. But went ahead with it anyway because he don't give a fuck, Chad. Before that, he beat Benson Henderson, uh, who maybe at the time was not everybody's favorite, but became more likable afterward. Well, it's at least a dude who did not get knocked out, which is what Rafael Dos Anjos did to him. Now, I don't know. Does it seem like a sweet gimmick to you if Rafael Dos Anjos's thing became like, send me your heroes and I will destroy them? That would be a sweet thing if he had the, the wherewithal to seize on, hey, this may not be my choice for a public persona, but this is what's happening. Uh, in my experience, that does not happen very often. No, he needs a writer. <laughs> he needs a Chad Dundas type out here scripting these promos and or maybe just holding a big sign behind him during his post-fight interview. Send us your heroes and we will destroy them, which I don't think you can do in the UFC these days. A little Reebok logo on it, you'll be fine. Maybe so. Yeah. Then it would, it would have to say, send us your heroes and we will dis- destroy them. <laughs> destroy them. <laughs> well, you know, he if you're, if you're going to go with that angle for Rafael Dos Anjos, he already looks a little bit like a monster from a horror film, right? Well, he looks like a supervillain, especially in this Wikipedia picture of him where he's just ice grilling the camera in his three-piece suit. Looks like his full Windsor tied there on his spread collar because you got to tie the full Windsor if you're going to wear the spread collar, Ben. just looks Ben's like, fashion expert, Chad Dundas. He looks like if you go into meet with him as your attorney, you would be like, all right, I feel pretty good about this. I feel like he is not going to back down when we get into the courtroom. I would feel like, why did my attorney send his bodyguard to this meeting? <laughs> so do we buy Eddie Alvarez here as uh, possessing a threat to the Rafael Dos Anjos uh, smasher of heroes tour? Well, you know, a guy who's as experienced and has been around as long uh, as Eddie Alvarez, I'm never going to say I'm totally counting him out. However, if we're going to look at all the, the title fights that are going on at on on this International Fight Week, whatever the UFC calls it, uh, on the week of UFC 200. This one seems like the one where I would feel most comfortable making a pick and saying it's a lock. Wow. Come on. What Of, of all the title fights, what, what do you think is an easier one to pick than this one? Um, no, I mean, you're probably right. I suppose Jones-Cormier would be the next kind of three-foot putt of this, of this lineup. Um, but yeah, you're, you're probably right about that, especially since Dos Anjos... You know, he had that decision win over Anthony Pettis, which was an eye-opener. And then the just the first-round destruction of Donald Cerrone has built this view of him where, like, maybe not only is he getting better every time we see him, but especially since he gets such little love, both from us in the media and from the fans, that when you see him go out there and destroy Cerrone in the first round, you have to be like, wow, holy shit, this guy is really, really fucking good at this. And it's not that we don't think that about Eddie Alvarez, but he just hasn't blown our minds, really, in his last couple. Well, I think one of the knocks that we've seen on Eddie Alvarez in his time in the UFC is, especially at the first fight when he came in there against Donald Cerrone, everybody thought, oh, wow, Eddie Alvarez seems undersized for the UFC lightweight division. And, you know, Donald Cerrone may be a little oversized. Look at the success that uh, he's already having at welterweight. But then if you go in there against a guy like Dos Anjos, who 
you know, he's turned into a, a really good striker on the feet, can really hurt you on the feet. And Eddie Alvarez has excelled when having to deal with those people by basically turning it into a clinch fight against the cage uh, and just kind of slowly working for the takedown and slowing the fight way down. But against a guy with Dos Anjos' power and strength, that seems like it's going to be a hard one for him to pull off. It's hard for me to see him do it, especially for five rounds. I just don't see you bullying Rafael Dos Anjos up against the cage and grinding out a split-decision victory over him here if you're Eddie Alvarez. Yeah, not to sell Eddie Alvarez completely short, but it does seem like kind of a, a nightmare matchup, both of styles and physicality for him against Rafael Dos Anjos in this fight. Here's a prop bet for you. Okay. What do you think the odds are that we see at least one title change in these pre-UFC 200 title fights? So the Eddie Alvarez... Dos Anjos fight and the Joanna Jacek Claudia Gadella fight because I feel like we're both coming out strongly in favor of the champion in these fight even though I did say trap fight about the last one you did you did say what that. are the odds Just we see tone of voice. at least one title change between the two of them well I think there's a, a, a really decent chance you see it in the Jacek Gadella fight I feel like it would be a long shot here uh, Dos Anjos is about a four to one favorite. I just looked at the odds. Uh, Jones is about a three to one favorite over Cormier. So maybe that's the three foot putt. This one is the four foot, four foot putt. I don't know. Um, but seems to me that if there's going to be any kind of title change at all, it's going to be in that, that women's bantam weight fight or in the women's, uh, straw weight fight. All right. I feel like I got you to backtrack here, which is my entire goal. What this hour long podcast? Okay, I don't feel like that's last a round you made it sound like it was in the book for for Yejich. It's all relative, Chad. It's all relative. I still think Yejich wins that fight, but if you ask me, if you say someone has to lose a title, I just don't see anyone else losing a title. Flip flopping ass men, folks up in here, everybody, just saying one thing, speaking out both sides of his mouths. Just depending on what round it is, between round two and round three. No one's listening this far. That's true. Everyone has already turned this off. Uh, speaking of which, let's do Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. We'll pick things up next week with even more discussion about UFC 200. Ben, did you see Rampage Jackson go out there and stink the joint up in the Bellator main event? against Satoshi Ishii this past week. Did you watch this? Yeah, I watched. Boy, it was lousy. And I mean, it was bad. Somehow Rampage Jackson picks up the split decision victory, uh, I guess because of clinch strikes with his back up against the cage. Seemed like... Underrated how he, technique. How he must have done it, because Ishii was kind of kicking his ass the rest of the time. So uh I don't really know how he came out with that split decision victory. Another... Uh, successful defense of his Bellator cruiserweight title. So I guess this week I'm just saying probably something I've been said that I've said on the podcast before because I've been saying it for the last several years. It feels like are we about done with this Quentin Rampage Jackson thing yet? I'm just saying because I don't see it getting any better from where we're at right now. And right now it seems pretty bad. I'm just saying. Just saying. I'm just saying next time he has a fight coming up, he'll tell us this time he's taking it super seriously and he's really motivated. He's going to go out there and do it. Yeah, that wouldn't have been this one, though. He looked a little <laughs> loose in the cage out there. Looked a little loose in the midsection, too. Uh, Chad, have you been following this little shitstorm between Super Sage Northcutt, Super Sage Northcutt's dad, uh, and uh, Muay Thai fighter uh, Ilya Grad? 
No, only in the vaguest possible terms. Well, in that, in a, that I've heard of two of the three of the people. There that was you just a mentioned. Ilya Grad had a uh, social media post on some social media where he was talking about how Sage Northcutt had come to spar with him at the gym, and that his dad kept interrupting, and that he has to get away from his dad and find a real trainer and real coach. Uh, not have his dad running his training camp. Otherwise, he's never going to get better as a fighter. Uh, and, of course, Sage Northcutt's dad uh, claimed that this was completely untrue. Sage Northcutt's brother, I believe, claimed it was completely untrue. And now Sage Northcutt himself, uh, in a rare, you know, speaking negatively moment for Sage Northcutt, uh, came out and said completely untrue. And this guy was being a jerk during the sparring session. There is video of the sparring session that, while... It's not super clear exactly what's happening at all times. It does seem to back up Ilya Grad's version, perhaps a little bit more than the Northcutt family's version, at least to me. And it seems like uh, we've heard similar stuff from other people about the influence that maybe Sage Northcutt's uh, dad is is having on his training camp and on his life as a fighter just in general. I guess I'm just saying, if your position is that this guy who said that this thing happened that seems right in line with stuff that other people said is going on is just completely pulling it out of nowhere. Just saying you might have a tough time trying to convince people of that because I think that everybody's kind of capable of recognizing certain patterns and stuff going on. And maybe you are the rare fighter where his father is running his training camp and it works out perfectly a hundred percent of the time and there are no issues. I'm just saying that's not usually how that stuff goes. Just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back next week to pick up where we left off, keep talking about UFC 200. We'll move on into talking about the Co-Main Event and the Main Event. It'll be a good time. You should join us. As for now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So you got you got five title fights spread over these three shows, three events. Somebody's losing their title here, right? I mean, I guess Frankie Edgar and, and Jose Aldo don't have a title between them at this point, but... Someone's dropping it. Someone's dropping the gold there. And I think it's, this is our opportunity to get in on some kind of a profit. We pool our money, we put our houses up, 